Good morning, church. It's good to see you here this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Philippians chapter chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. Like we uh, did last week, we're going to be looking at just uh, a part of chapter 3, in particular verses 4 to 9. Uh, but I'm going to read the whole chapter. And like I said last week, the reason why we're doing this is, is I think that chapter 3 is kind of one contained uh, argument or, or case that Paul is presenting for us to try to convince us of something. Uh, he's not necessarily fighting. When I use the word argument, I'm not saying he's fighting somebody. He's just simply presenting the case. So I'm going to read the whole of chapter 3. And we'll, we'll kind of remind ourselves what we saw last week and then zoom into 4 to 9. Before we get started, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your goodness, for your grace, for your mercy. We thank you that your son Jesus has done the work that we could not do. We thank you that you have lavished his work upon us, have poured it on to us, and filled our cups to overflowing. We ask that your spirit would be present and known and felt this morning, teaching us from the word. It's in Jesus' precious name. Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him in the power of His resurrection and and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, 
that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained, obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that, that, that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And their glory, they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Spirit, again, we ask that you would illuminate for us the purpose and the meaning of this passage of Scripture. Put our, put our trust in your work and in your teaching. We may know Jesus more closely and be drawn ever closer to our, our, our great God. It's in Jesus' precious name. So before we jump into our passage, let's just make sure we have our bearings. Uh, we've been talking, we've been going through the book of Philippians. And uh, in the first two chapters, the first half of Philippians, Paul, uh, Paul has been presenting this case. And, and, and my, uh, my view is that what Paul is doing is he's kind of circling this, this, this argument. He's, he's making this case. And then he kind of comes back around and he does it again. And each time he, he makes the case that he's trying to present, the thing that he's trying to convince us of, he, he adds to and he expands until he kind of gets his full picture. And so in, in the first half, Paul's argument, his case that he's presenting to us, is that we should he's, he's calling us to, to, to let our manner of life be, be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And as we were going through that, that passage as we were going through that, that text, I said that this is, this is in a lot of ways, in chapter 1, this is in a lot of ways Paul's call for our sanctification, for our growth after we have been justified in Christ, our growth between that point until we enter into eternity, uh, into glorification. We'll come back to those terms in just a second. But he calls us to this, and, and then what Paul kind of presents to us as he as he builds his argument. He, see, he, he says, as we, as we find personal, individual sanctification, this will inevitably drive us more into corporate sanctification, meaning, meaning part of being a follower of Christ is being in the community of believers. And as 
as I am called to, as I am called to grow and be more Christ-like in my own life, I am also called to, as Paul says, put count others more significant than ourselves and than myself. So as I grow personally and I I see all of you, all the rest of the body of believers, my my aim, my goal, my purpose becomes to to lift you up in service and in, in love and in compassion. And then it, this will inevitably drive us to evangelism. And so sometimes what we do is we think about we think about how do we evangelize, how do we evangelize, and, and, and we forget that the very first thing that we should do in evangelism is, is look inward. The very first thing that we should do is look inward and, and, and see the work that God is doing in us, and this will drive us and move us and motivate us. And then we get to chapter 3, and Paul says, the very first word that Paul says in chapter 3 is finally. Uh, and, and while that is a, a, a good translation, it, it misses a little bit in that Paul is not necessarily saying, uh, this is the last thing I'm going to say. But but sort of that he is he's going to kind of take a step to the side. And as we've been thinking about sanctification and how this drives us to corporate sanctification and then out into the world, he's going to kind of step aside bearing this in mind, and he's going to talk more particularly or more more purposefully about that same thing just in a new way. And so that's what chapter 3, that's what chapter 3 kind of is. So the first three verses of chapter 3, which we looked at last week, and if you weren't here last week, I'm not going to take, the, the obviously, the same amount of time that I took last week, so I'm going to go quick, quickly through this. So if you missed it last week and you're curious about what I said, you can go and you can listen to it on our website. But in the first three verses, Paul essentially says, uh, I wrote this in the past, and now I want to write it again because it's valuable for you. The thing that he is about to talk about, namely, beware of false teachers, he's written before. And he writes it in many of his letters. He writes this in many of his letters. I I suggest that I think Paul is referencing his letter to the Galatians. And the reason why I think that is because Paul is, is addressing or he's confronting the, the circumcision group or the people who believed that in order for you to become a Christian, in order for you to become a, a believer in Jesus, you have to first be Jewish. And in order to be first be Jewish, you have to be circumcised in the flesh, which becomes a barrier for many people. And we talked at great length last week about that. I'm not going to spend all that much time here. So I believe that Paul is kind of referencing his letter to the Galatians. And so when he says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who who mutilate the flesh, I think he's in reference to these people. Beware. Open our eyes and and make sure that we're we're challenging and we're studying the scriptures. And when somebody makes a claim or somebody says uh, uh, what they believe, we, we check it and we challenge it. And then he counters his first, uh, his, his first concern, be, be aware of these false teachers, look out for them, watch out for them. He counters this with how we should properly act. This is the reason why we can look out for these, these false teachers is because we, in fact, have the right information. We, the circumcision, he says, not circumcised of the flesh, but circumcised of the heart, we worship in the Spirit of God, glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. And last week I, I went on, I bled into today's passage, and I said that the reason why we put no confidence in the flesh is because Jesus has done it all. Jesus has done it all. 
Amen? Jesus has done it all. So what I think Paul is going to do really in verses 4 to 14 is he's going to explain to us why we don't put confidence in the flesh. He's going to use himself as an example. And he's going to show us why it is really foolish to put confidence in the flesh. When Paul says confidence in the flesh, one last thing before we jump into our text. When Paul says put confidence in the flesh, what he is actually talking about is not that I'm that I'm I'm, you know, proud of my physical body. That's not what he's suggesting. He's saying put confidence in the flesh for salvation. That I might I might earn my way to salvation with the things that I have done or the things that I am by my nature. We'll talk about that in just a second. In, in other words, don't believe that you can be good enough. Because you're not. You're not good enough. And so in verse 4, here's what Paul says. You can look there at verse 4. He says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I, have, I, I do have reasons for confidence. And you might think you have reason for confidence in the flesh. And if you have, if you think you have reason to, to, to kind of boast in your own in your own goodness, I have more reasons to have confidence. And this sounds incredibly bold for Paul to say. It seems almost arrogant at, at some level. But I I don't necessarily think that we can argue against Paul's point. As we, if we study Paul, we examine Paul's life, his ministry, all that he gives for the Lord Jesus, it's really quite staggering. Actually, sometimes it's so staggering that we get discouraged because we're clearly not doing enough. I've never been, I've never been beaten 39 times with a rod, as Paul was five different times in his life. I've never been shipwrecked for the gospel of Christ. I've never been stoned to death. In comparison to Paul, really, I've done very little. And so Paul gives this list. He says, you think you have confidence in the flesh. You maybe are a good person. And he's not arguing that you're not a good person. He, you, you, maybe, you maybe you feed the poor, go to, go to a, a shelter once a month. Maybe when you see a car broken down on the side of the street, every single time, no matter what's happening in your life, you stop and you help them out. Maybe you give to local charities or not local charities. Maybe you really are a good person. Paul says, you might, you might, you might, but, but I have more. So he says in verse 5, and, and I don't necessarily think the list that Paul gives here is all that critical for our understanding, but I, I do want us to see all the things that he, he says. He starts with circumcision. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. And I do think he starts with this because the, the group that he's confronting is the group that says that circumcision is the, is the most important thing that we're adding to what Jesus has done for us. He says, listen, I was circumcised on the eighth day. And the reason why he says circumcised on the eighth day is because that's when Isaac is circumcised. In the, old, in the, in the book of Genesis, that's the day that Isaac is circumcised. And if you were a, a really good Jewish person, you, you are, are circumcised on the eighth day to, to imitate Isaac. In order to be a child of God, you don't actually have to be circumcised on the eighth day. Paul says, maybe you were circumcised, 
but I was circumcised on the right day in, in mirroring Isaac, and I'm, I'm special because of it. Now, Paul doesn't actually think he's special because of it, but he's presenting this to people who think that circumcision is this special thing. He says, we might have that in common. That's great. Now, here's where I'm going to leave you in the dust, I think Paul says. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, about 500 and 700 years before Paul writes this, the, the people of Israel, they're technically two nations, and the northern kingdom of Israel is conquered by the, by the Assyrians, and Assyria takes all the people and scatters them around the world. And then a couple hundred years later, Babylon comes and conquers the southern kingdom and takes all the smart people and puts them in Babylon. And so the people of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, are spread all around the world. And when you're spread out, and you're already kind of a smaller group of people to begin with, when you're spread out all around the world, you tend to have to marry people who aren't ethnically Jewish. And so many people, especially when they came back from the Babylonian exile, that was a challenge that they had to deal with. What about all these people who, are, who, who maybe have a father who is Jewish and a mother who is, who is a Babylonian? What do we do with these people? These are the Samaritans in the, in the New Testament who Jesus uh, talks about the Good Samaritan, right? So there's some, some, some racial uncleanliness going on. I hope that makes us all feel just a little bit uncomfortable because I think Paul's trying to make a point here. He says, "I'm I'm an Israelite. Not only can he trace his lineage back and say, oh, we're 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 clean. Again, Paul's not suggesting that this is right. So I can do this. Not only can he say that, but he can also say I'm a Benjaminite." Meaning that his family comes from the, the lineage of Benjamin. An even harder thing to do. Because really, after the Babylonian exile, there are no more tribes. So for like 500 years, Paul's family has been keeping track of who they're marrying. And it's a good, right? Oh, it's, it's this great, I'm circumcised on the eighth day. I'm an Israelite, I'm a Benjaminite. And I think we can recognize that these sound really petty. I think we can. But who he's talking to? This is value. He says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. Probably means that his family held on to the tradition of reading Hebrew, reading the Hebrew Bible. So he can still speak Hebrew when, when the, the culture around him, the common language was Greek. As to the law of Pharisee. Now the Pharisees are one of the more influential sections of Judaism in, in the first century. And, and the Pharisees, what they believed, the thing that they held to was that the law... It's the primary, the principal way that we worship God. In contrast, the Sadducees, they believe that the primary way we worship God is in the temple through the sacrificial system. So the Pharisees said, no, it's the law. The Sadducees said, no, it's, it's, the, it's the temple. Okay, It's not that they discounted the other, but that, that was what the primary thing was. For the Pharisees, the law was just a little. And so he says, as to the law, I believe that it's the most important way that I worship God. By being morally upright, by being a righteous person, doing good things, helping the poor. So as to the law, I'm a Pharisee. In verse 6, he says, as to zeal, as to passion, as to, as to how serious I am about what I believe, I'm a persecutor of the church. We can turn to the first eight chapters of, of the book of Acts and see how Paul, how Paul is, is standing, giving, giving credit to the stoning of Stephen. He persecuted on the way to, on the way, before his conversion, Paul's like, I'm going to travel to other towns and find these people who keep saying that Jesus is the Messiah. I'm going to put them to death. He was serious about his beliefs. 
So he's he's circumcised, he's an Israelite, he's a Benjamite, he still speaks Hebrew, he's a Pharisee, he's a persecutor of the church, and then he says, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And this is the one that we might go, but were you? Everything else, Paul can say, this is true of me, and maybe present some evidence. He can, he can prove that he's an Israelite. He can prove that he's a, a Benjaminite. He can prove he can speak Hebrew. He can prove that he was a Pharisee. And everybody in the church already knows that he was a persecutor of the church. But this one, this one seems a little bit out of place as to righteousness under the law of blameless. Is Paul really suggesting that he is perfect? I think we know that Paul knows himself to be a sinner. We know this because we've read other books that Paul has written. Romans, he said, he calls himself a wretched man that I am. Chief of all sinners, he says. Paul is not suggesting that he is, he is sinless. Paul is suggesting that under the law, he has lived a life good, moral, and upright. And when he has failed, he's sacrificed and covered his sinfulness. Blameless. So in standing in the presence of God, he's lived a life in a manner that he believes, I can stand in the presence of God and I can trust that he will not condemn. Blameless. Now all the other things, he could maybe present some argument, or maybe could present some evidence, but this one seems to be a little bit harder to believe. But, but, but Paul says it anyway, because I, I think that most people, when Paul says this, can't really argue against him. There are people who live lives, as, as we examine them, go, man, that person is awesome. I don't know if I've ever seen them get angry or frustrated. They're calm and relaxed. So kind and caring and loving. This is Paul. He was a good person. Really, and, and isn't it Paul who, besides Christ, who we kind of point to as the one who really does about the best on earth? Again, Paul's not suggesting that these things are necessarily the best things. But he's placing them in opposition to others who are going, you know what, I'm a good person. I have confidence in the flesh. And Paul says, you think you do, you think you do, and you do. You have enough, you have enough, but you don't have as much as me. You don't have as much as me. And then he says, in verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So Paul, then he gives his own example. He's like, he's like look, I look at this, and I, I count it as loss. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cast it aside. I'm going to throw it away because it has no value in my mind. Now, Paul is not trying to convince us just, just yet. He's just simply showing us what he has done. He said, I have all this, and I cast it away for the sake of Christ. I cast it away for the sake of Christ. And then verse 8. Now he's going to convince us. Verse 8. Indeed, I count, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Paul, Paul says, I, I place all that I have, which is more than you, all that I have next to what Christ has done for me. And it's nothing. Because Christ has done all for me. 
He suffered and he died on the cross for one who had rejected him and would continue to reject him for years persecuting the church. When I think of the the worth of, of simply knowing what Christ has done as my Lord, it pales what I have done. And, and by association, pales what we have done. For his sake, I have suffered loss. The second part of verse 8. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as, as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. You know, you've heard the phrase, uh, one man's trash is another man's treasure. Sometimes maybe we can read the word. Rubbish is a, a British English way of saying garbage, right? It's kind of a it's a poor translation. The reason why we translate it this way is because we don't like we don't like crassness in the Bible because it seems out of place. The word Paul uses here is dung. It's feces. It's crap. And it's out of place. And it makes us feel uncomfortable. Ah, we don't like that. But that's what he's saying. Everything that I have, all these good things, all this value that I think I have, it's all absolute dung. You know, maybe if, if it was just Paul's trash that he was getting rid of, maybe if he threw it in the trash, some of us lesser beings than Paul would go and get it. But no. I was like, it's, not, it's, it's, it's good for no one. It's good for nothing. It's, it has no value. And, and the reason why it has no value is, is that it's in the way of me gaining Christ. In our world, in the reality of life, we, we can rationally understand that we can have many saving things. So I'm driving down the road, right? In almost every newer car, 10 years, 15 years, I don't know how long airbags have been a standard feature in cars. You have airbags and you have seatbelts. And then we also have speed limits, right? All of these things are designed to help Save our lives. The speed limit, the first line of defense, don't be a, a crazy idiot driving down the road and you'll probably be safer than if you are. But you put a seatbelt on and you get into a crash and your airbag goes off. In most cases, your seatbelt will probably save your life. You might get more injured. And, and I think if, if you didn't have a seatbelt on, and, and in some cases, if you got into an accident, you didn't have a seatbelt on, but your airbag still went off, you probably would still live. We have multiple things that are saving us. And, and that's how we think, that's how we rationalize it. There's no reason why I can't double, triple, quadruple up on the things that are going to save and rescue me. If I go on a hiking trip by myself and I fall into a, a hole and I get stuck, I hope that you don't just send one person out to come find me. I hope you send a lot of people out to come find me. Multiplying the chances of being found, right? We understand. But in, in, the, in the realm of, of what we are in, in relation to God, our sinfulness has driven us away from God. We are, let me say it in a different way. We have driven ourselves away from God by our sinfulness. And, and the, the, the reality is, is that I cannot... 
save myself. Much of the first half of the book of Romans is dedicated. Paul dedicates that to saying, to say, look, you, you might think you're good. You might, you might follow the law well, but, but all of it, all of it is, is, is absolutely not enough. But it's, it's not even just that I can't do enough. Right? Because I think sometimes what, what we do is we go, okay, I'm gonna do I'm gonna do this much. I'm gonna do 10%. And and Christ only He only has to do 90%. But what the Bible teaches us is that we cannot have two saviors. We cannot have two saviors. I cannot be part of my salvation and Christ be part of my salvation. Christ must be all of my salvation and my efforts, my righteousness, all of that is all dung. This is the beauty of the gospel message. It's it's staggering really to think that, that God says, yes, you are a sinner. But I'm going to give all to rescue you. I was talking to a Muslim man a couple, a week or two ago. And he, we, were, we were talking about, we were talking about what, what the difference is between Christianity and, and Islam. And, and, and I said, you know, he kept suggesting, oh, maybe, I think we're very, very similar. We believe that Jesus is a prophet and he's a good man I'm like, that's a, that's a good start, but it's not enough. It's not, Jesus must be everything to us. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And, 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 I, and I was looking at him, and I, and I thought to myself, it's like, in his eyes, he went, it's so judgmental. And I went, you, you, well, kind of. But, but that it's only judgmental if we think that we have to do enough to earn our way to Jesus when Jesus has done it all for us. It is, in fact, good news to need only Jesus. And then, and then we get to verse 9. So I, count, I count them all as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. And then, and then I think this is maybe my, my favorite passage of Scripture. It's not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of from God that depends on faith. From God that depends on faith. Meaning, when I die or Jesus returns before I die, and we all can say, come Lord Jesus, come. When I enter into judgment, which we all will, when I enter into judgment and and the Father looks upon me, He does not look at my righteousness. It's not mine to possess. He looks upon Christ's righteousness, achieved on the cross, that the Father then bestows upon me. Amen?
What Paul is going to do as we continue on into verses 10, 14, and then to the end of the chapter is he's going to go on. I've been talking as we've gone through Philippians up until this point. I've been talking about a few doctrines, doctrines of justification and doctrines of sanctification and doctrines of the doctrine of glorification. We've been talking about how how, how these things are all part of salvation, and we can't really separate them out. And this is exactly what Paul is going to show us here, and we'll talk about this more next week. Is they're, they're completely and, and unbreakably tied together. But we can, at some thought level, try to differentiate what Paul is trying to explain to us. And this is what Paul is explaining to us. In verse 9, Paul is talking about justification. When we stand in the presence of God, that Jesus' Jesus' righteousness has been bestowed upon us is how we are set right in God's eyes. That whenever I take, I, I, I go from being my own Savior and I cast myself in faith upon the work that Jesus has done for me, I am set right in God's eyes. And it's a moment and it's done. What Paul is going to pick up next week is what then happens between there and glorification. How we will be changed and transformed and how this is going to move and motivate me. It's this thing that we call already and, and not yet. We, we as believers, if you have placed your faith in Christ Jesus, if you believe that his work has been for you, we already possess his righteousness. We already possess it in in its entirety. So that if I die today, if I die today, God will look upon me as he looks upon his son. But at the same time, I also don't possess it in full. Because the work that Christ did on the cross in his resurrection isn't just about a covering. But it's about a transformation that happens throughout my life as a believer. That I will, be, I will be changed and transformed so that each and every day of my life as a believer, I will look more and more and more like Jesus. Until one day I enter into the, into the presence of God. And in verse 21, so I'm going to jump way ahead, and that's not on the screen. He says, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. We will be completely finished in his work. But it all starts with his, his own righteousness. And I think that it's critical for us to understand that everything that God has done for us has been completed in the righteousness of Christ. And we place our faith in his work. Let's pray. Great God in heaven, Lord, we thank you for the righteousness of your Son, Jesus, that has been given to us 
that covers our unrighteousness, that justifies us in your sight, that brings us back into a relationship with you. We thank you that it is all sufficient, that it is complete, and that it is finished. We pray this in Jesus' precious name.